Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the Flavor Cloud story with my friend Ratna Sharad. How's it going, Ratna? Going great. Thank you for having me, Joe. So, please introduce yourself and your company. Yeah, so I'm Ratna Sharad, uh, the founder and CEO of Flavor Cloud. Um, we make international shipping easy, affordable, and friction-free for brands uh, anywhere in the world. So are you guys a software company? Yes, we are logistics SaaS technology that powers cross-border e-commerce. So think uh, B2C, B2B. It's really about automating this complex, um, often manual, error-prone, and very antiquated industry across shipping, customs, compliance, and the world of global trade. And we are uh, global in the sense that it can be a brand uh, in any part of the world that can leverage our service uh, to go global. And that means you ship to 200 plus countries. And with that comes all of the complexity of uh, moving parcels. But it's so increasingly important. We all expect now the you know, again, the bar has been raised. So as soon as you say, I get this experience through you know, Amazon or eBay or hundreds of other companies, now you go, well, now I'd just like to ship to Mexico or I'd like to ship to England. Your expectations don't go down. You're like, how hard can it be? Of course we work with Mexico. Of course we ship stuff to England or India or wherever. And we all, you know, people like yourself, you have friends and family all over the world and you go, why can't I ship what I want to ship to them when I want to ship to them? Yeah, it should be easy, but uh, it is so incredibly hard. It's um, what I like to say, death by a thousand cuts, um, because you're crossing borders. Um, there's regulatory aspect. Understanding commodities for trade is important. And as you see now, and it's an increasingly connected world, first of all, uh, the transformation started pre-COVID, and if anything, it has accelerated post-COVID. To It used to be one in three e-commerce purchases pre-COVID was cross-border. And now there's like a doubling of that because guess what? We're finding brands uh, on Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, and uh, we don't care that, um, you know, there's a Korean beauty product or Italian shoes, you want it now. And thanks to Amazon, your expectations are that it's going to be great shipping costs or even free shipping and then uh, easy returns and full tracking and the fastest delivery times. And each of those things is incredibly hard to achieve um, with international. Exactly. So when did you start Flavor Cloud? Yeah, so we started in 2018, and um, that's when we You plan for COVID then? (laughs) No, (laughs) it is a really, really um, interesting journey in getting to Flavor Crowd, which um, I'm sure um, we'll get get into. But um, we're about four years old. Um, We started as, um, so we're um, 
the way to think about it is that we are uh, API first, so simple APIs that solve end-to-end cross-border across shipping, customs, and compliance. So all of the gamut of problems that you can run into right. as a brand or as a 3PL, uh, because we plug into warehouses, we plug into shopping carts. And so we actually started in Shopify as an app um, and then really started expanding our API first. Um, it's a headless global logistics platform that really plugs into um, the e-commerce stack and ecosystem. And where are you guys located? Where are you based? So I'm based in Seattle. A lot of the leadership team is based here. My co-founder is also based here. Um, but our team is truly uh, global uh, and distributed and remote. Um, that's the new reality. That's one <laughs> so. more That's one more reason that we need cross-border. I mentioned I wanted to send a gift to uh, uh, an associate. And what a pain it is to send their overseas, or not overseas, just another country, and you go, why can't I do what I want to do? <laughs> I mean, it all starts with the consumer problem, really, because consumers have that expectation and they, they're finding these brands and, and requiring brands to uh, essentially automate things. Yeah, the, the Internet, which we're all using, I mean, it is uh, it doesn't have borders, right? Uh, you know, when you get to a, used to occasionally see a website, U.S. shipments only or something like that, or, you know, can't ship outside of the U.S., but less and less of that. But anyway, before we talk more about Flavor Cloud, well, I have to ask this. Why the name Flavor Cloud? How'd that come about? That's a great question. Um, so the cloud is easy. We're a cloud uh, service. Um, but when we were coming up with the name, um, you know, we do a myriad of things. It's not just shipping. It's not just customs. It's not just trade and compliance. And we looked at global and ship and there's dime a dozen right. companies and, you know, you could get lost in the sea of uh, ships. So we decided um, we needed something that described uh, diversity. It didn't need to describe exactly what we did, but needed to have the diversity of products, oh, all the flavors uh, thought, of the world, the global <laughs> nature of um, the business, um, and so that's how that came about. Excellent, excellent. So, Ratna, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some sense of you as a young girl. A young girl, yeah. Um, so I um, I was born in uh, Chennai, uh, which is uh, a city in southern India. Um, it's by the coast. Um, I grew up there. I went to school there. My dad uh, was an engineer, and um, you know he was a very big influence uh, in my life. Um, I think in the early days, um, as well as you know, much later, choice of profession, if you will. Um, my mom was a homemaker, uh, but she had a very different in influence. Um, she was extremely creative. Um, so I like to think of it as left and right brain <laughs> development. Right. But, you know, I, I think my earliest memory is uh, my dad building our TV at home. Uh, and this is uh, from oh, wow. um, literally <laughs> soldering um, uh, these ICs. Um, onto a motherboard 
and it was a, a, a six-month process where he'd come back from work and I would sit with him when I was four years old or so and pick the color or the, the type of IC that he wanted from a, a box and, and the end result was we had a TV and it was so incredible um, that um, you know building and engineering became something uh, that I wanted to be a part of um, so I always like to say that that's where it started that's interesting. You know, it's funny you should say that because when I was a, I, I, my dad owned an engineering business and I got into the engineering business that way. And I, I went to school at night and I first got my business degree because it was, I was close to it. And I was like, and then I thought, okay, now I'll finish up my mechanical engineering degree. That's what everybody got in Detroit at the time. And I didn't, I didn't enjoy the classes, but nobody enjoys engineering classes. Uh, if you, if you, very few people enjoy those classes. They're hard. And I was like, but while I was working, I was already working as a design release engineer. And what I realized is that the best engineers among the groups, they were guys who were building their own computers, tearing down cars, rebuilding cars. They had all these mechanical projects. And I thought, I don't care about that. I don't want to build my own computer. I want to, I want to buy one, right? They had a curiosity and interests that were so different than mine. And so I always think that's the true engineer. When the guy, and a friend of mine just retired from Stellantis, and I was joking with him when we worked together at Chrysler, which is now Stellantis, I said, your work life and your personal life, we worked on Jeeps, there's such an overlap. How do you know when you stopped working on work projects and started working on your own? Yeah. Yeah, well, you see that uh, as a startup founder, for sure. <laughs> it's a process. Right. But we need more engineers. And I'm, I'm convinced of this. Uh, the United States is desperate for engineers. The whole world is desperate for engineers. And I think we need to, uh, by the way, I should also say, instead of getting my engineering degree, I went back to school for my master's in education. And I feel very strongly that we need to remake our our program our education system so we can pump out as many engineers as we want and not have somebody say, "Oh, I hate math, so I don't want to." Like you shouldn't hate math, nor should you hate English or whatever. <laughs> we need to make these programs more accessible. And it reminds me also, did they ever, you ever hear that like in engineering school where they say, "Look to your left, look to your right. Only one is one of you is graduating as an engineer," and you're like. <laughs> who does this help, idiots? Like, who are you? Like, isn't it your job to educate us? We got accepted to this school. <laughs> you have to make it fun um, so that you want to do this. So, Right, right. So you grew up in India, in, Ch in Chennai. And again, I was asking you before we hit record, I know so many people here in the Detroit area from Chennai. It used to be always from Bangalore. I know that was like a big tech center. It seems like Chennai must also be a big tech it center is. over there. It is. Chennai, Hyderabad, Bangalore, all of these are tech hubs. Um, actually, all across India, really. Um, there's a focus on um, professional degrees, um, so engineering, um, medicine, um, they tend to be the preferred uh, professions, um, and culturally, families expect their kids to oh, yeah. become professional. Um, certainly, that was the case in my family. Uh, I have two younger sisters, we're all engineers. <laughs> so. It's it, it's the culture, if you will, and it's the schooling system. It, it's all of those things. Yep, 
Yep. So, well, we're lucky to have so many indie people over here because I swear to God, our uh, our engineering hubs. I mean, I'm in Michigan. Would close <laughs> Silicon Valley. Would close Boston. Would close Austin. Would close. We need we need outside talent. I mean, I think there's more per engineers per capita in the U.S. than anywhere, and I think Israel. I think is second. But the, the world needs engineers, and again, I think we have to somehow make that more more. Not, I don't want to say easy. We just have to make it more accessible. Just somehow pump people through. It shouldn't be, oh, yeah, I'm a geek. Therefore, I can get an engineering degree. That should not be it. Anyway, so did you go to school for engineering? Yeah, I did. I did um, my um, computer science and engineering uh, was my focus uh, in university, and that was in India as well. Um, and then I moved uh, to the U.S., um, uh, to actually uh, work and simultaneously I was supposed to uh, go to school but I kept deferring uh, schools and just continued working for quite a while. So give us some career highlights before you started Flavor Cloud. Yeah, uh, so my journey, you know, um, from engineering, a developer, uh, to product leader is where, um, where I led product organizations. Um, for the last 25 years um, is the journey. It actually started in the supply chain logistics industry. Uh, started working, uh, that was one of the first contract jobs that I had as a developer. Emory, um, oh, which nice. uh, worldwide, um, you know, owned fleet of um, airplanes. It was a super interesting uh, space, got me into transportation, logistics, and supply chain, which uh, was fascinating to me. So Emory Menlo, so I worked for carriers, folders, 3PLs, and then eventually uh, UPS, a couple of years, um, I've worked with DHL in Brussels in Germany. Um, so what I did was I built... Um, did, you, did you actually move over there for a while? No, I, I well, I visited. Back and um, forth. Back and forth, because what I did was build route optimization, cross-border solutions around the world, so North America, Asia, and Europe. Uh, so think uh, air, ocean, trucking, all modes of transportation. And I also got to work with customs organizations around the world, so defining trade, tariff, regulatory compliance, and what the technology contract should look like, um, defining a lot of those. Uh, so that was around the first 10 years of my professional life across um, you know, product and business and um, actually managing the enterprise solutions implementation. So that was Portland, Oregon. So um, that's where I spent um, the first decade. And then I moved to Seattle because of family, um, but rather than um, take up transportation at Amazon, which would have been the likely choice, I picked a completely different space. Uh, I was fascinated by the online space. Um, I wanted to move to something completely different. So I joined a tiny uh, startup You can never team. leave. <laughs> I found that out later. But, uh, but yeah, I joined this tiny startup team at Microsoft. We were a dozen that built the ad platform that eventually became Bing Ads and uh, 3 billion when I left. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was a, a fascinating experience. I own the ad platform monetization marketplace and really working with the advertisers, um, uh, the Amazons and Ebays of the world, all the way down to SMBs. That's fantastic. So did you meet uh, Bill Gates over there? I saw him. I didn't actually get to uh, meet him. <laughs> I know him. it's a big organization. <laughs> yes, yes. 
I did get to meet uh, Satya Steve one on one, though. Satya. Who is oh, the, yeah. He, yeah. Is he the current CEO? He is the current CEO. I did have a meeting with him, actually, one-on-one, but yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Now, he was, he was a long-term Microsoft guy, and then he just got promoted. Yeah, he used to run our organization, the ad platform, so I did get to meet him, and that was fascinating. That's fantastic. That's a... Uh, You've worked so. You, you, I looked at your LinkedIn profile, and it looks like you almost go back and forth from like all these different modes of transportation, but then in these tech, and uh, it's it, I, it it's almost like you knew you were going to start Flavor Cloud. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the fascination for me, um, especially at uh, working on advertising, was that we were helping make that connection between brand and consumer through ads, and that's what got me really fascinated. I, you know, um, uh, as a uh, consumer, I shop a lot. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly traveling and, and um, finding new brands around the world. And so shopping and that, that e-commerce uh, experience as a consumer was actually so horrendous. Right. That... It was not good for a long time. It was good online and then it got real ugly as soon as you put it in the shopping cart. Yeah, and, <laughs> and especially international, it's so horrendous that it got me thinking about why all the past life uh, work that I'd done did not translate to the future that we were building at Microsoft with uh, e-commerce. Right. And I felt uh, best suited to solve the problem, like bridge the world and really think about it across logistics um, because I deeply understand the space and the challenges and and uh, again I understood tech stacks and how e-commerce worked and so it felt like I could bring those two worlds together and solve it and I could see it was the future so it's interesting whenever you watch and again it's um, probably the new current CEO uh, how do you pronounce his name Satya Satya, when you watch the Microsoft CEO or the Google CEO or CEOs in general, I should say, but especially these big companies, and they talk about the future. I remember Bill Gates talking about us being online and buying stuff online and being educated online. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, it's cool to look stuff up online, but I'm not working online. I mean, I send emails. And, you know, I remember it was just seemed, but I think that was the nature of technologies you you start to see all of the possibilities mm-hmm. and meanwhile the rest of us are saying i just got to move a truck today <laughs> you can't help me and the reality is that technology as soon as it starts to get there you go oh my god get the impact i always say the, the tech guys and gals are like 12 and 0 they're like alabama they're like georgia they are going to win <laughs> so when they get there get on their team <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and if you look at it, you know, I've always thought about what is that thread that connects everything that I've done in my journey to get to Flavor Cloud. It is that I love complex business problems, real life problems, and it doesn't get you got that crazier <laughs> than uh, transportation and logistics and supply chain. It's just uh, so vast and so complex and so antiquated that it is so yes. great in terms of, you know, how you can transform that and apply technology towards those problems at scale. And I think that that's it. I think, Ratna, if I was to look at, um, you know, when technology first came out, it was simple to connect all of the computers in my in my office and even in my building. My four walls I can control. I know what internet's coming in. 
and then we kind of said, okay, I can connect to the internet, and so can my suppliers. That was simple enough. But when you start talking about international commerce, you're talking about companies with their different technologies that aren't always complementary, right? Can't integrate until recently. You have different cultures, different languages, different time zones. And then when you throw in tariffs and customs and security and distance, it's impossibly hard. And I can tell you early on in my 20 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, I was doing a lot of work in China. And I remember we would send stuff back and forth, usually DHL or whatever. And we had big um, containers shipping back and forth. And we used to open those containers and never know what we'd find. <laughs> I mean, and we'd get PDFs, it'd be in Mandarin, and we'd have to, you know, translate or, or maybe they translated over there, but it was never quite right because it's technical. And we couldn't, we couldn't easily exchange blueprints. <laughs> so, so we would ship blueprints back and forth. And it was, it sounds so ridiculous and antiquated, but it's my lifetime. It took coworker of ours said, I can send an email. We can email this stuff. It took three weeks for an email to go from Beijing <laughs> to, to, to Detroit. And you're like, that would be like right now. And, and so finally we're connected. But the reason it took so long, the reason it is antiquated to your point is these are not simple, simple problems to solve. These are the complex ones that you wanted to get into. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you you nailed um, the problem uh, statement. It is that there is incredible fragmentation as well, because each country has their own uh, laws and regulations as it should be. You know, there's World Trade Organization that that right. has purview, but then all of the trade agreements, what you do in terms of compliance, and now because of e-commerce explosion, Every country wants a piece of the e-commerce pie because it's moving from brick and mortar to e-commerce to cross-border e-commerce. And so I think if, you're, if you've seen Fluid, you just the next three years are going to be a complete transformation in terms of uh, the landscape for trade. That's well, it's good. Again, it's tr tr trade is good. And, uh, you know, it'd be nice if we could get clear our ports and we'll get that fixed later. But so... Was Microsoft your last gig before you started Flavor Cloud? Uh, actually, so Microsoft, so when I had, um, so I basically decided I was best suited to solve the problem. And I quit along with my co-founder, Sherwin, who used to be my developer at Bing Ads. And we started what's, our what's first the, What's their name? Sherwin. He is the CTO and co-founder. And we started our first company. It was pre-Flavor Cloud. That was called Runway to Street. Uh, it was a marketplace that enabled small and medium brands to sell internationally. Oh, so you you learned how that problem works. Yeah, yeah. So and, and, and deeply immersed in the problem, uh, we scaled to over 300 brands in 100 countries selling to 200. Whoa. And we found that it's not just an SMB problem. It's not just the small guys. Um, the larger uh, the brand, the more the complexity and the more the need for a specialty uh, service that can really um, you know, ease the pain and, and fully transform their business um, and, and have them go global. 
But the second thing we also learned is that those were really nascent cross-border days. You know, we in the last three years we've seen cross-border uh, cross-border become a buzzword, uh, but in those days it was uh, it was still an afterthought. And so every solution in the market, we used it and it didn't, it did a teeny little sliver of what we need. Right. And so we had to build everything ground up, um, you know, think about it as an anywhere to anywhere logistics problem for our marketplace, for our brands, for the end consumers and how they actually, you know, interact with the checkout, how they, um, how they uh, experience the parcels delivery across the border all of that was that's what that was our learning ground if you will and so over the four years um, of honing the platform we found that you know the logistics uh, back end that we built uh, to power our marketplace was the biggest value add we provided them and we started getting requests from these larger brands who didn't belong in our marketplace or want to be in it but wanted to leverage the logistics so that's how flavor cloud was born we well, it's no surprise given your background. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so during that time, the, the, the market also transformed. And so we started seeing the picture unfold for the connected um, global e-commerce uh, needs. And it was a much greater need um, that was unfolding in front of us. So we took the back-end technology and said, what we really want to do with this new company is offer a service that any brand anywhere in the world can leverage and really transform um, you know, their international business and go global. Um, and that's essentially uh, what got us here. Yeah, you know, getting back to that complexity, um, I had a customer, this is just pre-COVID, mm-hmm. and they were from Europe and they were selling mostly to stores here in the United States, so it was a consumer product. and. That was uh, that was fine and dandy. And then they said, "Well, we know that we have to sell more on e-commerce." And then this was the this this hit me like a ton of bricks because I all of a sudden I got the European perspective of doing business here, and they do business all over the uh, all over the Europe. And they said, "By far, the easiest place we work is the U.S." But then here comes the the uh, zinger. He said. Selling to stores is relatively easy, but selling to consumers is really hard because we have to figure out the sales tax for every single state and we can't do it manually. And they go, every state's got a different rule about sales tax. And he goes, can you help us with that? And I was like, doesn't your software do that? (laughs) (laughs) I can't do that. Like, I don't know. Well, that's the complexity, right? It is by commodity. So you have to first classify a commodity so it's understood by the World Trade Organization defines the standards, but uh, you need to define the commodity so it's understood across borders as to what you're shipping. And then the second piece is uh, each country then has compliance and trade in the tariffs and duties and fees that are very specific to that commodity. And there is a difference between uh, a wool woman's sweater and a cotton woman's sweater and how much of that composition is wool. Uh, So there's all kinds of specifics that you need to get. Now, if you think about 
that at scale, if you have, you know, 100 SKUs, or then if you have 10,000 SKUs, and then if you are doing an agile manufacturing cycle across hundreds of thousands of SKUs, how exactly are you supposed to get accurate? Because the differences in tariff could be 10% to 30%. It could mean your entire margin as a business. So just to try and illustrate what you guys do, so I can understand this. Let's just say I've got a store, Joe's Sweaters, and I say I'm going to start selling um, only online. I'm not going to sell to consumers. And so I start here, and I'm working, let's just say, with a warehousing company, fulfillment company, that maybe a few locations that uh, supports my U.S. So I'm same day, next day to the U.S. Am I, do I necessarily, can I use your, can I use Flavor Cloud, or do I need Flavor Cloud at that point? No, you don't, because you're doing domestic uh, fulfillment at that point. Um, we are exclusively when you're shipping across borders. Um, so think of it as um, once you understand your brand, uh, you've figured out who your end consumer is, and you get to a certain scale. Usually we see that it's around the 10 million mark in terms of sales. I like the sounds of that. Yeah. And so then you've got an idea of that consumer and guess what that consumer is in in any country around the world right it doesn't matter and they're finding you as well because they're connecting directly to the brand once once people see my sweaters they're going to see them and they're going to want them so so of course canada needs sweaters it's cold there just like here <laughs> so i mm -hmm. i can ship i'm i'm in i'm in detroit i can ship stuff from detroit to toronto right well Yes and no. Uh, Canada is actually one of those really difficult um, countries to solve for because they have taxes that are province-based. So unless like it's here. really, <laughs> unless it's really, you know, lower value, we have a, a trade agreement that um, is. We just updated NAFTA for e-commerce, correct? Yes. So now it's I USMCA. think it's called MCA. Yeah, USMCA. the USMCA. Uh, so NAFTA's new incarnation. NAFTA 2.0, they call it here 2 .0. in Michigan. 2.0, exactly. So there are trade agreements which give you, you know, so that, that's important too. That means that if you're under the de minimis, um, then you don't have duties that apply. And then there's a different one for taxes. So the complexity is still the same in that, uh, you know, you still need to figure that out, make sure that it impact, what, decide if it impacts your business or not. But to your point, finding a carrier that can ship to Canada becomes easier. But if you don't have these other pieces figured out, it still is a terrible customer experience. Well, I'll just I'll just suggest this. So maybe one thing I could do is I could, if I was going to open a distribution center, I'd probably open it somewhere in Greater Toronto, GTA, Greater Toronto area. Hopefully on the outskirts, so I don't get in that traffic jam. <laughs> but as soon as they shipped it, couldn't they manage the province taxes? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, five years ago, when you thought about international expansion, it really was that strategy. You didn't have a different. I had option. to open a fulfillment center. You you basically had to have in-country presence. Now it doesn't matter if it is uh, Canada or it's the UK or it's somewhere in Southeast Asia. But I don't necessarily want. Fulfillment centers everywhere. Exactly. So because then you have to create a legal entity, you're hiring resources on the ground, you're building operations infrastructure and, and probably hiring uh, folks to go do your fulfillment, you're stocking inventory. 
all of that is overhead that you're doing without actually knowing if that if that is going to have any returns at all. Well, I would use a fulfillment center over there, but my concern is still I have to have inventory there, and I would rather do the fulfillment from here. That's the other piece of it. You didn't have that option before. Without us, you don't have that option. That that's essentially what I'm getting to. What we allow you to do is that. 200 plus countries you can turn on. So we're going to help you monetize your existing traffic better, which is where we start. Take a data-driven approach to, you know, what are these countries that are doing well? Where is your product resonating? Um, we have a lot of insight in terms of, you know, if you're a beauty brand, you know, how do you expand to Southeast Asia? So we then work with the brand to say, you know, uh, how do you expand your presence in these countries by optimizing your checkout first? by helping inform your marketing strategies so that your customer but acquisition that's all about, cost I can't see that as the I can't see that as the customer that's all happening because that's in the all happening the it's data driven and it is a full understanding of what markets are should be your focus um, because you don't want to do the same thing for every market that's just not going to work and so this is the it's a completely different way of thinking of international um, and you're you're not having to do that in country like you're used to. And also doing a cost benefit analysis to see that if there is a need for you to eventually go in market, what does that look like? Um, and we certainly help with that. We see that once you get to the 100 million plus, you're looking at a multi-warehouse strategy. Maybe you have a warehouse in Netherlands that fulfills all of EMEA. And that could be a strategy. But, and again, that's why we are anywhere to anywhere in global, because we can help you from Netherlands fulfill around the world. So getting back to my Joe sweaters, mm-hmm. I can fulfill, let's just say I'm, I've got it, I'm, I'm here in Michigan, I can fulfill from tr- the Toronto market from here. It's not that far, it's four or five hours, right? So I don't have to open a distribution center. I can have my use my U.S. distribution center, but but I'll throw something else out there. Even if I opened up at a Toronto fulfillment center, if somebody bought from me in Vancouver, Canada, I would rather my California people, my California DC, support that because they can do it faster than Toronto can. Yeah. Uh, Canada is not as well developed for cross-border as the U.S. is. So we we see this all the time with brands. Um, so you might think that it's just Canada, but to do it right. Well, they're so big. They have the biggest landmass. But the, if you look, they've got, I think, a big chunk of their population is Toronto and then another big chunk out west. And <laughs> the two, three days between, right? <laughs> And you have to look at the cost for shipping. It's a cost benefit analysis that you're doing and the efficiencies and you have the inventory here. Are you going to move inventory? So when you look at all of that, it's so much simpler to just fulfill from I, one location. I, I, I told you when I was talking about the European brand that I was helping, I told them I really didn't want you to have to do anything in Canada. I want you to be able to support Canada from Ohio. From my perspective, I the way I looked at it is supporting two different distribution centers that are 10 hours apart, eight hours apart, is ridiculous because there's costs associated with having that. You're paying two bills every, you've got inventory. I'd rather have all my inventory in, in Ohio than have some of it up in Toronto. And so if I'm, let's just say in Europe, and I want to sell to the US, and I want to sell to Asia, I want to sell to all my European partners, I can use, 
I can use Flavor Cloud. It's yes, anywhere absolutely. in the world. So, you know, it, the other, um, so certainly, you know, let's say Netherlands um, with Brexit and, uh, you know, the EU VAT changes, what used to be easy transfer of goods has now, you know, I was talking about trade and regulatory compliance world changing and tax revenue becoming important um, to governments. That's what we're going to see in the rest of the world as well. So now you really are looking at, um, so if, whether it's the UK or Ireland or Netherlands or wherever, uh, we can support their warehouse. So essentially what we automate is pick up from the warehouse and delivery through our carrier network, which is the largest global cross-border network, optimized for every route. So think first mile, last mile, global mile, everything in between. So that it's a seamless experience for the end consumer that's receiving the parcel including the customs clearance aspects of it. Yeah, and you you don't move pallets. You guys are all about parcels, correct? Actually, we do freight as well. That That is a, a, an interesting shift that has happened because, and I think we were talking about this a little bit um, before uh, recording, where there's a transformation in B2B that is tremendous. You, you see that products get obsolete really quickly. Earlier, you used to have, you know, two seasons and maybe a nine month development cycle for these products and getting it um, to uh, fulfillment centers. But now they sit on a boat for two months or six months and then uh, they go obsolete. Um, you know, you're, you're having to get rid of inventory. So really consumers are demanding a much more agile manufacturing and development cycle. So we're seeing what used to be ocean network and ocean containers because they've gotten so much more expensive as well, moved to air networks and, and smaller fulfillments. So we, um, we absolutely do, um, larger, uh, what's considered freight as well. So for us, it is, it doesn't matter what your international shipping needs are, B2B or B2C e-commerce. We enable all of that for the so brand. So you can, you can make all, you can do all those calculations in the background. And what's, What's interesting, and we were talking about this also, is when I used to say e-commerce, I meant direct to consumer. It was one in the same. And now what I think a lot of brands are finding, not brands, just businesses in general, we're finding that using the e-commerce platform is easier than maybe having a sales force out there. And all of a sudden, like, you know, and I think also... We we tend to think either e-commerce or retail, but I think in a lot of ways we're that that barrier is falling down in our head because, as you know, when you buy from Target, they're most likely fulfilling it from a retail location. So you go to Target.com and it, you might pick it up at the store, you might pick it up at the curb, they might deliver it. It really kind of doesn't matter to you, and I think we there's people like my kids who kind of don't know it any different, right? That's the, that's the world as it is, just options. Yeah, and, and B2B world is so manual, even more so than e-commerce, right? So you're dealing with, you know, the supplier, you're dealing with um, the port, you're dealing with the cargo, you're dealing with, you know, again, back in the import location, you're dealing with the broker. All of that is so manual and uh, time consuming and none of it is um, electronic. And so it, it's it's where e-commerce was, um, more than like I'd say five years ago. Yeah, it's funny. I guess what's happening in a way is like the internet drove this consumer behavior that says, I want 
that what I want when I want. I don't care where it's from. And, you know, you look at, like, the United States. There's um, still a nation of immigrants, same with Canada, same with many countries. There's people, what, 20% of the population of the U.S. is Hispanic, Latin, Latin, Latinx, Hispanic, whatever you want to call them. They might be from Mexico. They might be from Puerto Rico, where they're, wherever they're from. I think Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, US whatever. Territory. But, yeah. <laughs> but they might say, I want this spice or this food or this product from Peru or from Mexico or wherever. And, and you know, you're, you're from India. If you were to say, I, I grew up eating this food. I would like it. I can't get it here. I want it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's also the other piece is manufacturing. Manufacturing is happening in a different part of the world. So yes. we see, uh, why should you manufacture in China, ship it to the U.S. and then fulfill it to somebody in Southeast Asia? That's not right. an optimized right. supply chain. So we get into those types of situations and say, you know, we could help you directly ship from your manufacturer uh, or your 3PL in China. Jeez, to oh, Pete, I didn't even fulfill. think of that. Yeah, and I think what we're going to see here in the next, you know, next 20, 30 years, we're going to see a lot more stuff move back to the U.S. from China. But also, also it's interesting. I talk to a lot of automotive people still, and there's a lot of manufacturing, a lot of back office, obviously, move to India. And they're, they're a better price than China right now. And we're going to do a lot more business with South America. And we, uh, we need ways to be able to take some of those barriers down and some of those barriers are the customs and the taxes and the uncertainty of how do I actually make this happen without it being pain. <laughs> That's where we come in because trade taking is Taking the friction just, out. Yeah, and the trade is simply moving, right? It's moving from one lane to the other. It, it doesn't go away. Ultimately, people have to consume. Products have to be made. They have to be shipped across. Um, they have to reach a global audience, but it can only shift from one location to the other. Very interesting. Very interesting. So let's switch gears a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your experience starting a company. I talked to a lot of founders and it seems, you know, they all kind of have a similar, but I guess similar story in that there's struggle. So talk a little bit about some of the inflection points, some of the, you know, things you remember along the way. I know it's only been four years, but it's been eventful four years for you guys. You've got a lot of employees. You guys have grown like a weed. Yeah, yeah, we have. So, you know, the, the prior journey uh, with Runway Street was like my first startup and there was a lot of learnings from that. I think that helps you the second time around uh, when you're trying to, you know, think about how do you go about it? I think it makes Did you guys just close that or exit? How do you, how, what was the... We made, we, sh- we shut down Runway to Street and created a brand new Because you saw entity. this big opportunity, your back office was really the business. Yeah, and we needed to take that and kind of transform it into services. So it's not like we just took that, but you needed to make it a service so that it could be plug and play for any brand, that it actually integrates into shopping carts, it, it integrates into warehouses in a very seamless way. All of those learnings in terms of, you know, how do right. you do cross-border went into the algorithms and how we think about optimization. And we created these um, super simple apps that could plug into a Shopify or big commerce um, experience and and really uh, provide um, immediate access to brands to scale their business. 
and that led to, you know, how do we then scale up to the larger brands? Um, our focus is mid-market and enterprise. And then we work with a lot of channel partners that like 3PLs and resellers that work with the SMBs. We're, we're a solution that can, so the headless global logistics is a way to think about it, where that horizontal layer powering global uh, e-commerce, whether it's B2B or B2C. Now, when you look at who, who you sell to, you sell to e-commerce companies and 3PLs and brands. So who, give us, who's your biggest, what are the biggest segments for you? So um, we think of our um, segments as two key segments. One is brands, and these are typically the 100 million plus. Um, basically, they are at a point where they're ready to scale. These are our mid-market to enterprise brands. And they are the ones that are, you know, they have any, they're moving into e-commerce or they're already direct to consumer digitally native brands, which is the core segment that we focus on. And it's in their DNA to start thinking conversion optimization, reaching a global audience. So there's a lot and of. And they've probably uh, been, they've been probably struggling also with. We got orders from all over the world, and yes, each one's a exactly. pain in the ass. <laughs> exactly, and they try these things, and then it's a it's a it's terrible for unit economics, and it's death by a thousand cuts. There's somebody downloading Excel spreadsheets, doing stuff, and then uploading. It. Yeah, and it's um it's so um it's painful because every country is so different, right? And you're dealing with even customer service. What if you shift it to DHL and it's in China, and then now you have to call them and figure out what to do? customs and so it, it doesn't stop with generating a label or getting a good rate um, and that in itself is a really large and hard problem to solve because shipping rates um, figuring out the right carrier to use no single carrier has a global network that can solve for all countries around the world uh, if you think domestic means you know carrier redundancy resilience and networks and all of that international is like you can't do anything without that. And so that's why it is so complex. And as a brand, we're even a start. It's not in your DNA to understand trade or uh, the ecosystem of logistics and how that plays. And there's um, every country has so many different variations and every commodity has a different variation. You know, the, there is a lot of silos when you think about e-commerce. You think about the people who are, you know, maybe you know, a creative like myself with Joe sweaters, I might be really good at making sweaters, but I'm not really good at driving traffic to a website. So I have to get that silo, which very different than me. And then, and we, me and my partner who can drive traffic, we can make, drive people to a shopping cart and they put it in there. But then when they get those crazy, you know, <laughs> error messages, because I wanted to ship it overseas, or maybe they're just exclusions. I've always said the e-commerce gets ugly when they when they pay for it because now it has to go through this this as you said the global market that is very antiquated. And you need specialty providers all along the way. That's why e-commerce services across the board from marketing to you know manufacturing to warehousing to everything is outsourced because they're the experts and they can do it in a much more cost-effective way while you focus on um, you know the the vision for the product so what about what about returns i mean returns are a big problem here in the u.s i mean we do a horrible job wrong way to say it it's just a very difficult process it's much more expensive to reverse logistics and and I told you when we were prepping, 
if I was to go to a warehouse, the typical fulfillment warehouse, you can kind of point out where the returns are because somebody, somebody tried on the sweater, didn't like it, kind of put it back in the bag with, they ripped the bag apart, they taped it all up, and now it has to be inspected. It has to be, somebody has to decide, is this going to be thrown out? Is this going to be returned to somewhere? I don't know where. <laughs> you know, um, absolutely. So I think we've established that, you know, between domestic and international, international shipping is already 10x harder because right. of all the complexity. Now, if you look at international returns, it's actually 10x harder than international shipping because uh, it's even right. more fragmented and manual and each country hasn't uh, developed their processes. So international returns um, actually tend to be uh, around 5 to 10% as opposed to domestic and e-commerce in general, which is think around the, 20 I don't think a lot of the world even does returns like we do here in the U.S. And I can see, actually, I could see the U.S. changing somewhat first off because there's so many i think it's 30 people are still bracketing in the u.s where they're like i got that sweater in you know blue i got it in large and i got it in green i'm going to try them all on i'm going to send two back and the, and the brand says it's free well it's not free it's just it's you're not, not free. Paying somebody's for paying for it <laughs> but that's the thing right the consumer expectation though is that you're going to give me that complete experience that i should be able to request a return merchandise authorization, you send me the label, maybe I pay for it, it depends. And, um, you know, it goes all the way back. And that is actually what we enable uh, true reverse logistics um, for the parcel. So we can bring it back to the origin, whatever that warehouse is. And then they can do the dis disposition do the, on that. Yes. Um, and that is another incredibly hard problem to so solve. And if you think about you know, uh, and it's by vertical. There are verticals like fashion, beauty, accessories, where that is kind of expected. Without that, you can't be a truly global solution. I think we, we also have to retrain consumers. Well, first off, brands have to do a better job on sizing, and I think they will because it, it is a painful thing. I've, I've told the story on my podcast. I won't get it, say it again, but I my daughter's got me some shoes that I really like. They bought, they were like just, sneakers, whatever you'll call them. And I tried on three different sizes. And I was like, I know what my size are. And after a while, I sent all three of them back because none of them fit. And I thought, you guys could have sent me a piece of paper with a size chart. I could have stepped on it and said, yes, this is my size. And by the way, my size hasn't changed. I go over to the... <laughs> that. That's another weird thing where you say, I'm this size. And then not not in Europe, you're not that size. not... Not in Mexico. We have to do a better job. And there's innovation on the shopping uh, consumer yes. experience as well that needs to go hand in hand. But the expectation from consumers is that, is that as a brand, it. you innovate across the board and that you offer uh, returns when it does become a necessity so that I can come back to you again. Uh, repeat customer purchases are, are an important metric for international, just like they are for domestic. Uh, and you really want to think about lifetime value and growing um, loyalty of the consumer, it's important that you offer the experiences that you that um, are similar. Because in their mind, consumers want international to be just like domestic. Yes, of course. Of course. I'm buying from somebody because I believe they're going to give me that great experience and the great product. By the way, like if you look, um, I think Amazon's going to open their own stores here. And I think it's, you know, they... <sighs> 
if you look at articles, they say it's going to be a department store, but we know Amazon's not opening department stores. It's going to be very innovative. We know it's going to be data-driven, but we also know that part of that thinking is going to be um, returns. And, and, and I wouldn't be surprised to see um, maybe they're sell, selling their essentials. Who knows their essentials brand? But we know right now when I just returned some shorts to Amazon, some uh, gym shorts, and it said, return these to Kohl's, return these to UPS. UPS and Kohl's are both like a mile, less than a mile from here. And I was like, they really made the experience simple. And that's what I expect. I bought it easily. I returned it easily. Anyway, let's switch, gears. <laughs> let's switch gears again. So to, what were some of the bigger problems that you and your partner and your team uh, struggled with when you started this biz? Yeah, so, I mean, there were lots of challenges. You always, uh, you know, even if you kind of experienced it in the previous startup, um, there's still a lot of learnings every day. Um, that's why I love the startup world, because you do come across um because you new like things complex problems <laughs> yeah but i think uh, covid was was really something that that was um, you didn't plan for that <laughs> <laughs> that was uh i think uh, that stands out as something that you could not have foreseen and uh, nobody did obviously but more importantly um in that moment it felt like the we didn't have any answers nobody else did brands didn't have answers it was just a very 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 trying time as a founder to say you know what should because there's no patterns there's no historical context um there's no uh data well in the beginning you really didn't have a sense for is this actually march was insane (laughs) right is this going to kill off five percent of the population or what you know what are we looking at here and you're dealing with personal things as well as like, you know, the company. Uh, we hey, were about fam- friends uh, 10 and family people, and- uh, and, uh, you know, a small team. And then we had um, all of our customers literally were uh, impacted, um, like everything was um, coming to a crawl. And then we got out of it, um, like, you know, it was uh, one of the best things then that could have happened. The consumer boom began right after uh, the the fear. <laughs> we went crazy buying stuff online. Right, and we? then so then the business completely transformed. Uh, international became the number one growth strategy in brands' minds, and they started thinking about, oh, I need to own my own D 2 C experience, and I need to think about um, you know my supply chain and not coming to a crawl the next time something like this happens. And so it was really interesting, but I think that was unlike anything. And I I don't know how you prep. (laughs) Right. So your team was already distributed, like you were all over the world already. So you you guys have, um, you kind of already planned for it, but you kind of were prepared that way. Yeah, I think that wasn't a challenge for us because uh, we, you know, we did have touchdown space and we would meet uh, and we didn't do that anymore. Didn't but right. but working remotely wasn't such a challenge for us. It was actually a pretty seamless transition. And since then, we've now grown and expanded the team and we've, um, you know, become fully remote um, global team, India, UK uh, and the US and US were pretty spread out in the US. And we are 37 as of this month. Um, so we've grown significantly employees? as well. 37 employees, yeah. Fantastic. Now, did you guys did you guys go and get VC money? Yes, we did. For the original company or for this one? Well, this is all Flavor Cloud. Uh, the original company never did VC money. 
that I was going to say that transition would have been a little more. Well, you probably, I know VCs let you pivot, but you would have had a lot more explaining to do. It was nice that you could move fast without VC money at that point. Yeah, we did our first um, VC, you know, round. Well, we did a seed round uh, with Flavor Cloud. That's how we got started um, in 2018, and then we did our Series A last year. Um, both had VCs in them. Very nice. And uh, Mucker led our round um, in April. What'd you say, Mucker? Mucker VC, yeah. That was April last year. And yeah, I mean, this is an enormous business uh, and we see that as a VC um, enabled. So what are, you using that, what are you guys using that money to invest in? Yeah, so three core areas. Um, one is the first thing we wanted to do. We were a team of 10, uh, primarily product and engineering. We had one sales and one customer success person. So we really needed to build out uh, the team. So last year for us was uh, focused on building out um, the executive leadership team, as well as each of the functions uh, across uh, sales, customer success, um, uh, channel, uh, which is the other segment that we focus on. To your previous question, we talk to brands and then we talk to, uh, we connect into warehouses. So channel partners like third-party logistics providers, 3PLs, as well as uh, resellers and tech platforms that essentially act as the, you know, uh, we're in the back end enabling logistics and they own the engagement with um, the uh, merchants. Um, so we, we and agencies. So these are three variations of channel partners that we work with. So yeah, um, investing in uh, the actual team across all of these functions. And the second piece was technology, really scaling up. I feel like we, uh, you know, Flavor Cloud is four years old, but our technology has been honed over eight years. But the market and the uh, landscape is going through such a tremendous transformation that this is about the next level of automation and uh, machine learning and AI that we can apply to these complex problems so that's even more automated and building out all of those capabilities. So the second piece is tech. And then the third piece is actually, we never had an, an outbound sales, marketing, or any kind of you know efforts of really uh, understanding a go-to-market fit was last year really across channels, what works, how do we hone it, how do we get to a point where uh, we're ready for you know understanding how do you scale up these partners that are working uh, to a much larger scale, and then how do you take um, a, a you know, we were getting a lot of inbounds. So how do you build out the outbound uh, merchant uh, acquisition? Yeah. So you mentioned a- AI and ML, so artificial intelligence, machine learning. Now, when you bring that kind of technology, that's not something you guys do. You have to connect to some other some other platform, right, for that, like a Google or Microsoft? No, it's in-house. Um, so the way we do that is think about route optimization. It is our algorithm. So we solve that problem. We look at, you know, what's happening across Flavor Cloud Network. We look at, um, you know, the, the... So in the shopping cart, we're making these decisions. What is the cheapest, fastest, most efficient way to move these products? Do you have that enough data for that? By my limited understanding, you need a ton of data for that, and then you need a lot of computing power and an algorithm, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. So we have algorithms in multiple areas. Um, Drought optimization is one of those. Really, you need to be able to pick the right option. And we have a lot of historical context on what's working and what is not working that needs to be applied back to that so that you're solving it the right way. 
Uh, it's a merit-based, you know, uh, platform. Uh, you know, we have 300 plus carriers and it's a real-time optimization problem. And then the second area where you need a ton of data is the product classification problem. Oh, yeah, and that yeah, data yeah. is there. How do you classify a product? How do you do that at scale? How do you do that across, you know, 10,000 queues? Uh, so yeah, and it always seems like there's so much ambiguity to it mm -hmm, also. Mm -hmm. Which is why it's it, it's the right place to apply uh, right machine you want to take the ambiguity out of it yeah and you want to train it. it it's it it doesn't automatically learn you need the data you need uh, you know training you need to uh, improve accuracy over time you need to feed the uh, the right set of um, data points and characteristics that you want uh, driving it and then um, you know there are other aspects as well where you know where we're doing a guaranteed delivery duties paid that means Lender costs, uh, duties, taxes, and fees are accurate, and they are, you know, upfront, um, and we guarantee them. And uh, we actually take uh, these products through customs clearance and delivery. So all of these are large problems on uh, on their own, and they are so great to apply and technology. Too. <laughs> yeah, they are. Interesting. Interesting. So I know I'm going to lose you here at the bottom of the hour. So I will uh, be quick here. So I meant to ask you in the beginning of this, I, I, I'm always curious, when you first moved to the U.S. and you be, began living here, um, what was your, what was, what surprised you about living and working here? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, uh, growing up in India, I was exposed to, you know, I traveled a lot. I used to travel to the Middle East. I used to watch all the shows. So I don't know that it was a completely, you know, alien experience. Yeah, sit sitcom version of the U.S. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Soaps and sitcoms and, you know, um, like I, I love they, music. So and, you thought Americans all be better looking. You're yeah, like, no, oh. but also it's the uh, rock music and videos and it's all kinds of things. So I think um, it's magazines. I was really into fashion. So there were a lot of things um, that I was interested in. That you did in. understand. But what was the surprise? The biggest surprise, I think, was um, being in Missouri. So I landed in Jeff City, Missouri, and, uh, you know, it was a capital, and it, it was two Hollywood. exits. And I was like, oh, my God, uh, that I didn't expect. So that was that was definitely a shock. I was like, okay. And nobody's seen anybody look like me before. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I was telling you when I, I told you the story before we hit the record. You know, I'm in Michigan and I worked with so many Indian people and friends and, who are from India. But when I was a kid, I remember my dad had a friend from work who came to our house and he was from India. And he was like, he was the nicest man. <laughs> and he would have dinner with us, go up some in the pool, whatever. And me and my friends would look at him like he was uh, from Mars because he might as well have been because we had no exposure. And he, he would explain and talk about, he would tease us about, you know, where he was from and, you know, uh, it was always shocking. Now we kind of don't have that. You're like it's hard to go in any area, especially tech, where there's not a full contingent of Indian people. So the world, the world is changing, and it's funny. That's only you know in my lifetime. So things have changed so quickly. Absolutely. So, Ratna, what's next for you? What's next for the industry? And what's next for Flavor Cloud? You can give it me that in any order you want. <laughs> I think. I'm most excited about the 
uh, pace of change in the industry. That's one thing you can never plan for as a founder, right? Um, the timing is the most exciting thing. And I feel like, you know, we're, we're here at the right time. And it's going to be a really exciting next two to three years as we kind of lead that change and transformation. And that gets me super excited. Yeah, you guys are in the right right place at the right time with the right software. I mean, it's really necessary. You know, again, I think virtually anyone listening to this who says, I would like to ship something as a consumer, not as at work, but as a consumer, we've all experienced wanting to ship something. It's a very real problem that everyone can relate to. So uh, that's, that, that's what's driving it. It wasn't so long ago that e-commerce platforms are struggling with sales tax for states now we're talking about all this all the countries in the world how, how many countries do we trade with i'm just curious 200 plus um so any country that doesn't have an embargo uh we actually ship to so it's 200 some because <laughs> i know there's always I, i'm always curious about the list i always thought it was 180 some but it's 200 some all right well so what's next for you more of the same you know, for me personally, it's um, I'm excited about the journey with Flavor Cloud. Um, I think, you know, uh, going from a Series A to a B startup, very different challenges. Uh, it's a very you got to wear different hats. Yeah, it's a you know the larger team. Uh, it's very exciting to have my executive team, the full team out here and ramped up, and so it's a different stage for us. Excellent, excellent. Well. Rathna, what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll also put a link to Flavor Cloud and any other links you give me, I will put in the show notes. <laughs> so you guys, if you want to connect with Rathna or, or Flavor Cloud, you can do that. And I really appreciate you taking the time. It's a different kind of company you have, but so important. I mean, I think anybody listening can, can really relate from a consumer perspective, but also from a work perspective, because it's not. we all know this is not a problem that's been easily dealt with in the past. Well, thank you so much for having me, Joe. It was uh, such a pleasure. Yeah. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn. <laughs>